Good morning from Washington, D.C., one of the few areas in our nation where local authorities have not relaxed COVID-19 precautions in the past few days. My name is Paul Kincaid. I'm Director of Congressional Outreach here at FMC, and on behalf of our former members and our staff, I'd like to welcome you to our virtual roundtable this Thursday. This is our second Zoom-based roundtable and will be the first with a live Q&A function as we continue to provide you with more informative, more interactive programs. If you're interested in asking a question today, simply move your mouse to the bottom of your Zoom screen and click on the Q&A button at any time. It will ask you for your name and for your question. Once we get into our discussion, our moderator may call on you. If he does, you'll be on audio only to ask your question, so don't worry if you're in pajamas, no one will know. Once you ask your question, we'll return you to the audience and our moderator and former governors will have a chance to answer it. Today, we have an opportunity to look at a unique function of the United States government. We're a federal republic who in our founding legal document have specific rights and responsibilities assigned to the federal government here in Washington, but two very specific amendments that reserve much of the power of our nation and its laws to our now 50 states. Of course, this is an international pandemic and has been responded to at every level of elected government in our nation from town councils to White House. Today, our question is a simple one and the answers will not only be varied, but incredibly complicated. When there is an emergency, medical, economic, or otherwise, what is the state government responsible for, and what should we look to Washington to address? We have a great panel to answer those questions today, a pair of former governors, one of whom also served in Congress. Leading the discussion this morning will be a man who has both federal and local government on his resume. Congressman Steve Bartlett served Texas's third congressional district as a Republican from 1983 to 1991. Prior to that time, he was on Dallas City Council, and upon his return, he became mayor of Big D, where he served until 1995. Congressman Bartlett joins us from the Hill Country in his native Texas, from which he'll introduce our panelists and moderate what should be a spirited discussion. Congressman? Uh, today, uh, big surprise, the topic will be, all the, uh, will be all COVID all the time, which has been going on for the last 60 to 90 days now. But today, we're going to focus on the federal, on its COVID and the federal state relations. What what we've learned about the role of the federal government and the state governments, the role of the states, the role of the federal government, what, uh, what's gone right so far, what's gone wrong so far. Um, it, it, this is very much a work in progress. It's probably the most classic uh, laboratory of federal state relations that we've seen in a uh, hundred years or so. We do have two experts uh, uh, with us. Uh, I'm Steve Bartlett, as I was introduced. I was a member of Congress with John Kasich. Uh, he and I came to Congress together. Um, he stayed and became quite successful in the House Budget Committee and then went on a successful career in, uh, in, as governor of, uh, of Ohio and, uh, uh, and, and then as a candidate for president. Uh, Terry McAuliffe, uh, who's much younger than the rest of us, uh, is also in national government with the Clinton administration and in national politics, um, and then went on to have a successful uh, term as, uh, as, as governor of the, of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, uh, in Texas, we have difficulty saying that. We usually call it the Republic of Texas, but we'll just we'll just pass by on that. So we have two national experts. The format will be uh, we'll uh, uh, talk about some of the wrestle with some of these issues. It is all on the record. I know that comes as a big surprise to everybody on this panel because uh, on the record is the world that we that we live in. Uh, we'll I'll tee up some topics, and they can take it. Uh, the panelists can take it as they as they will, and then we're going to open it up for uh, questions and answers from the on a Zoom basis uh, from the participants. Uh, when you're ready to ask a question, as Patrick said, uh, uh, ask your question. Go into the uh, Q and A function, uh, and then I'll and then I'll call on you, and your microphone will be released, and then you, then you can ask your question in li live. Hopefully, your question live will be somewhat resemble what you said in the chat function, uh, but you're not uh, you're not held to that. A little bit more about John Kasich. Uh, he and I were colleagues, uh, as I said, uh, in an extraordinary career. Uh, the author of the first uh, in decades, uh, and maybe the last balanced budget at the national uh, level. Uh, his hallmark was bipartisan solution, uh, problem solving, uh, bipartisan basis. Uh, and he, along with the, with President Clinton and other and the, all sides of the aisle, came up with a balanced budget. Uh, he then went to Ohio, did the same thing, also with bipartisan problem solving. Uh, uh, he faced a, a rather intractable, what appeared to be intractable problem in, in Ohio with, an, and, uh, with, uh, with deficits. He had an $8 billion shortfall coming into office. Uh, he ended up balancing his budget to, uh, with a surplus, created a $2.2 billion uh, reserve fund, and created 500,000 jobs. He then went on to run for president, 
uh, I was and am a supporter of his. Uh, John, if you want to go ahead and announce for uh, your candidacy for president again in 2020 on this show, we can really make some news uh, here and I'll sign up with you. Very Terry good. McAuliffe. Uh, yeah, Terry, Terry and, I, and by the way, I won't say governor, governor, because then no one will know who I'm talking to. So I'll say Terry and, and John. Uh, Terry was the co-chair of, of President Clinton's re-election in 1996, went on to be the chair of the De Democratic National uh, Committee, and then um, went, went to uh, Virginia as a commonwealth uh, uh, known for stimulating the uh, national growth, known for bipartisanship, uh, problem solving on a number of areas, gun, gun violence, uh, among others. Um, and then economic development, where he created a large number of jobs brought into the uh, Commonwealth of Virginia. So with that, uh, let me then just sort of ask the opening question. Uh, and John, I'm going to start with you since you and I were co colleagues. Uh, so I don't know whether it's going to be by seniority or by uh, age or by uh, uh, alphabetical, but we're starting with John Kasich. And by looks. Because I'm the, I'm the moderator, so I get to choose. So... <laughs> Give us your state of uh, your assessment of where we are in federal state relations now, as as it came through with uh, with COVID. What went right? Uh, what went wrong? And what can we expect for the next uh, six months or so? John. Well, I don't I don't think we're we're out of this. I mean, I can't give you all the details, Steve, other than to say that we thought at one point we could have had Ebola in Ohio. And I asked the federal government to come in, the CDC, to help us. And, uh, you know, we kind of ran things. They were involved. Things went fine. It seems at this time it's been very, uh, very confusing. Uh, I don't think that the, you know, the federal government, the administration made it clear what the state should do, who gets the help. I mean, Look, it, it, this is uh, this black swan event is, is not just about you know, state and federal relations. This is about all of our complex uh, systems in this country that uh, are exhibiting fragility, weaknesses. And uh, one of the things that's incumbent on everybody is to is to rethink all of these complex systems, whether it's the healthcare system with shortage of, uh, of PPE, you know, drugs being manufactured, fundamentally critical ones in China. Uh, whether it's our education system, I know Terry's very interested in that, you know, how are you going to get kids back into school, what's it going to look like, uh, it, it, our transportation system, everything is going to have to be reviewed and going to have to be thought of in a different way. And um, for me, the federal government has not functioned well, it hasn't functioned well for many, many years. It's too big, it's got too much fragility in it. And uh, uh, so, along with the federal government, many other complex systems, there needs to be a reinvention, in my view. Uh, Terry, comment? Yeah. Listen, this has not been our finest hour, federal-state relations, that we've gone through this COVID crisis. I agree with John. You know, I had to deal with Ebola. I remember right off the bat, I talked to the White House. I stood up two hospitals, built Ebola wards immediately. CDC was in contact with my health experts three times a day. Uh, this is different this time. Uh, I talked to those same health experts who work for me or are still in Virginia. They don't ever talk to the CDC. And unfortunately, some of the information they get is contradictory. That is now how you have to deal with a crisis of this magnitude. The, the federal government, particularly the White House, was slow early on. They knew November, December, January. It just got delayed. We don't have intelligence agencies at the state level. We got to rely on the federal government when it comes to something of the magnitude of this COVID pandemic. So then once it got going, uh, unfortunately, and, I, and listen, I've tried to do this in a bipartisan way. I've written op-eds with Chris Christie, with uh, uh, Tom Ridge. I just wrote one with Jeb Bush about what the federal and the states ought to be doing together. We were recommended early on that FEMA and the NGA should take control of buying the masks and the PPEs. And what happened is that states began to fight against one, one another. And the scalpers went crazy. So you ended up paying more. This emergency equipment was not going to where it should have gone. And, you know, that is something the federal government should have jumped in, used the War Production Act immediately to say, we're taking control. We're going to stop the scalpers. We're going to do distribution on where it is needed. And unfortunately, that did not happen. The governors have been the big stars. John and I are in agreement. We should have a president who was a governor. You know, we got to balance budgets. We got to create jobs. We got to build roads. We clean them. We run education and healthcare. But I'm proud of the governors who have stepped up to the plate and they've done it 
you know, without a lot of help. In fact, it's really been in contradictory to what the federal government's tried to do. They've had to go out on their own and buy this essential equipment that they've needed to keep their citizens safe. And the last thing, I hope they can redeem themselves. We do need to get aid to the states from the federal government. Uh, it's not going to be the $3 trillion bill, but there's somewhere the NGA is asking for $500 billion. These states are desperate. Many of them uh, cannot survive without the federal aid to get through this without the tax revenues. And it's not about repl replenishing funds. This is about keeping firefighters, police, emergency responders. If they don't help the states, met police, they're going to be fired. And it's really, this is a time we need to work together. Steve, the one thing I think, you, you, know, you being, being mayor, I think one of the things we would, that would make sense and would have made sense is for the federal government to basically lay out the basic rules of what was expected and kind of stick to them. Now, look, the, the, the great thing about having 50 states, and it's a little bit different in the middle of a, of a pandemic for sure, uh, but one good thing about having 50 states, of course, is this idea of, of laboratories. And all of our eggs are not in one basket. And so we can look and see what, what really works in one place and what doesn't in another. But I, I think there should have been uh, some more uh, general direction from the federal government with, um, with an ability of states to, uh, to be able to exercise uh, a significant amount of their own authority. But I just think there was a way to get that done. So today, and that, that has been the way it's been, to, today there seems to be still a, a lack of guidance or at least uh, uh, conflicting guidance from the federal government, but the states in fact have stepped up and provided their own plans and their own guidance. Is that your assessment also? Yeah, I mean, that's what the states have had to do this. I mean, the federal, I mean, let's cut to the chase here. We have not had a uh, good definition from the White House, from the president. It has been contradictory from day one. And basically, he has left it up to the states to make the decision about when they reopen, which is fine. I mean, governors now have the data based on the health, based on the science, when we should open up areas. Parts of Virginia are open up today. Here where I live in Northern Virginia, we're not open because, you know, we're still seeing increased cases of COVID. So the states are having to make those decisions. And listen, the governors on the ground have that up to the minute information about the hospitals, the PPEs, the number of infected, the number of deaths. We have that information. So that's fine that the states are stepping up to the plate, but we cannot do it alone. And unfortunately, the partisan bickering that's going to go on on this bill for aid to states, there are states that just cannot survive. And I, and I disagree. And this, this is what uh, Jeb Bush and I talked about. You know, when Mitch McConnell says, well, let the states go bankrupt, you cannot let states go bankrupt. I, we have a $7 trillion municipal bond market in this country today. You're going to let all of a sudden that become shattered? Of course not. So we got to put the foolishness aside. This money should be used in the states to protect the first responders and so forth and help them survive for this very difficult depression area economy that every governor has to deal with. But it can't be done alone. It should be in partnership. And this could be done. If John and I were in the White House today, we would have had this done in a second working in a bipartisan way. This was what makes America great. John? Well, there, there seems to be, uh, the states seem to be working just fine. There seems to be a civil war almost going on within the administration of agency versus agency. Uh, the states, uh, my, my impression is the states have now solved the supply problems and states are able to get their supplies in a coherent way and kind of solved it on their own. But within the national government, you have the White House. No, versus I don't, I don't think versus so, we, don't, we, we don't, we don't, we you don't, we don't, we don't, so? we do not have the testing and the contact tracing, which is a critical part mm -hmm. of reopening in many different areas. And the states, you know, some of them have when they've gone their own way and we're going to look at the data as to how it's happened as they've begun to reopen or now we're beginning to see a spread of this in our more rural areas. I think that, uh, some weren't paying attention. Uh, to me, the critical question for leadership at any level, I just watched this long documentary on, on FDR, and he was a canny guy. Uh, I didn't operate like that, frankly. The way that I did it was, and I think many of the ways in which you, you as I know you, I don't really care very much about the politics. Uh, I look at something and I say, there's a problem, let's go fix it. 
And I think one of the things that will be reviewed when we finished is how many of the governors used ideology, how many of the governors used partisanship in some of their decision making. I'm not prepared to, to say how many of them have because I don't think the jury is in, but it'll be interesting to see. And to me, uh, you know, a lot of pressure on governors to open up, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of pressure politically, you know, marches in their capitals and all that other stuff. I mean, I don't like that. I didn't like it when I was there, but you know, that isn't what moves me because, you know, one day you're popular, the next day you're the bum, and then the next day they want to build a monument to you. So, you know, I, I, that's the thing I think we have to look at. In terms of, I agree with Terry at some degree, the states are going to need help. But look, I was about 20% in the hole when I became governor and I left with almost a $3 billion surplus. My problem with local government at times, and you know, I've had my problems and my disputes with them, I would just like to see those governments be able to make the hard choices that we had to make. I would like to see them make the hard choices that we made when we were balancing the federal budget, the choices I had to make when I was a governor, because sometimes I find that those choices are not made and that the more they get money, you know, the more they don't have to make changes. And the fact of the matter is our debt now is so high, we have to be careful of it that it doesn't tip us over. Uh, and I agree with Terry in terms of, the, you know, obviously the, um, the bond market, the municipal bond market is serious, but what, what does it take to fix that? What should it look like? And then beyond that, what are we gonna have business as usual? in our cities, in our states, in our federal government. I mean, these things aren't working. You know, our infrastructure is not very good. Um, you know, is the federal government too big? And again, it doesn't just apply to government. It applies to everything. You know, we got one airline that's, that's only, a folk, you know, filling you up to 40%. You got another airline that's cramming them in like the old days. Uh, you know, what, what, what's it going to look like going forward? And the people that will win are going to be the people who think creatively and get ahead of the curve, because there is not going to be a return to quote the old normal. We are going to enter the new normal. And those who are going to be successful are the, the ones who are going to be uh, really uh, creative and progressive thinkers. Well, do the states need more guidance than they're getting now on reopening, leaving aside the, the virus and reopening? It, it does seem to be each state is making its own decisions. How, how well is that working or not working? Uh, and should there be more guidance uh, for a, a more coherent set of guidance? Uh, Terry? Yeah, I think, Steve, listen, uh, the horse is out of the barn on this. The governors just are not relying on the federal government, which traditionally, as I say, and with the Zika virus, Ebola, you know, it's, it's different this time, and we all know the reasons. We won't waste time on this call going through it, but the contradictory, crazy statements out of the White House, the governors are relying on their own data. We all hit, now we have the information in front of us. We all are provided that, you know, as a governor, you're getting that on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. So they know what is in their best interest. And I agree with John, there's a lot of pressure. If I were governor still today, I wouldn't open until I felt comfortable that... Yeah everybody was going to be safe. As I've talked to governors, I've done a lot of talking to governors. I used to chair the NGA. Another 30 or 60 days is not going to have a difference to your economy. But if you do open up prematurely and you do see a new spike, you can forget business development in your state. Um, so you have to balance all those. I was a very pro-jobs governor. I inherited a record deficit, left a record surplus. I was all about building the economy. But safety of your citizens is first and foremost. And I would never, no one was going to pressure me to open early. That's just not how I operate. I know that's not how John operated. But to answer your question, no, we have our own data in the states today. We are going to make up our own decisions. And the problem, like I'm here in Northern Virginia. We've got Maryland, D.C., and Virginia. I'm two miles from the District of Columbia. They're not open at all. They're through June 8th they're talking about. You've got Maryland and you've got Virginia. Maryland's two miles from here. DC's two miles. We are all interconnected. We're the same workforce. We all move back and forth on jurisdictional boundaries. So the one thing I wish our governors, and I'm glad the compact up in the Northeast, we need to act as a group, like here in Virginia, DC, Maryland. It should act as one because we're all working, we're all living together. Steve, it's, I, think it's, I think the answer to it is a rolling reopening, you know, 
we call it the hammer and the dance. You know, in the beginning we used the hammer. Now we're trying to dance. And uh, let, let's think about, take you back to when you were mayor of Dallas. I mean, you would have looked around at the landscape using data, I would assume, which is why the testing and the contact tracing is so important because when you find somebody, you can isolate them to prevent the spread because the, the R factor on this virus is, uh, you know, is, is exponential. I mean, one person has the capability to infect an amazing number of people and that's something to keep your eyes on. But you know, you would have gone looking at data uh, you'd have opened some things. If you began to see something you didn't like, shut it back down again. Yep. Um, you know, it's sort of a rolling approach based on, <clears throat> based on science. Now, you know, we also know that not opening something, and I see the DCs doing nothing right now, I, I get concerned about two areas there, and that is the consequences of doing nothing, because the rise in, in mental illness cases is very, very concerning. Uh, spousal abuse, uh, rising use of, uh, of drug abuse. So, you know, you can't lock down forever at this time. I, I agree with Terry, and I think, look, he and I would have been, would have done it really the same way, did things the same way. Keep an eye on the data, figure out what makes the most amount of sense, open things that you're comfortable with based on, you know, the people that you know, who you trust, your doctor. Uh, maybe some people that aren't in your circle, and um, and then begin to do that, but be careful, but build up as much testing as you can get. And the contact tracing is very, very difficult because you need so many people to be able to do it. But that should be a very high priority for all of us. Out here, as we're beginning to open, I have a sense, a sense that people are kind of, you know, relaxing a little bit. I think to some degree that's good, but, you know, maintaining social distances, using masks, these are just critical things. And, um, of course, we have some good news. It's too early to be able to declare victory, but, you know, whether it's, uh, uh, whether it's the Moderna uh, initiative that we're beginning to read about uh, or the Oxford study, there, there's some progress being made towards a vaccine. I don't know what the timeline would be for a vaccine, but but think about if in fact we could come up with a treatment. You know, when you get the flu, you take Tamiflu. If we can get a treatment, that is going to, that's going to go a long way uh, in anticipation of a vaccine. And the one thing is possible is that we will, we will have to learn how to live with this. And uh, we're not, it's not clear that there's a, that is, there's an inevitability of a vaccine that's going to be effective for everybody. We just, we just have to see. In the meantime, you know, slow, steady, and determined. So you both seem to be giving the states high marks in their reopening uh, about right, not some, maybe a little too fast, maybe a little too slow, but data-driven. Is that what I'm hearing you saying? That's it. All that matters. So which, which states are doing, the, doing it best in terms of reopening? I'm not getting into the name names. Yeah. I, well, I you can say I Ohio or more. Texas or Virginia. We love them all. All right. All right. Seems, seems to be some consistency there. That's, that's, I'm that's not prepared to, to, to make a judgment on that, and I'm not sure I ever will. Yeah. Uh, I know that here in Ohio, I think Mike DeWine's done a good job. Uh, we got ahead of this early. Um, we are stabilizing, but we have to be on guard. In terms of what's happened, I saw that they're spiking now in Florida. Um, you know, I I saw those pictures of crowded beaches. I think about that. I'm concerned about what we're seeing in the rural areas. I don't want to give a grade to somebody. I just think that as a nation, we've got to figure out what works and what doesn't. But, you know, are some going to listen to the, to the data and the facts? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, I, I, it's not my, my job to be given out grades. I, I don't, I'm not prepared to, to do that. Well, Steve, the reason we can't do it going to our point earlier, we don't have the data. And a lot of people like to make assumptions they don't know what they're talking about. I don't know the data of the other 49 states. I don't have the full data. I'm not the governor of Virginia. I'm not getting the up to date. It all should be based on the science and the data. And that should determine. I don't know where there are particular hotspots and so forth. So nobody, I don't think anybody should ever be judging another state or so forth and how their leadership is doing. Because we actually don't have 
the information, the data to know why they're making the decision that they're making. That's just not public information. So there, there is one other thing, Steve, that I think, I mean, there's a lot of things that could be said, but there's another thing. You know, has government at all levels prepared for a pandemic? You know, uh, here, here's really, you know, the question is, what is the, to me, the biggest problem as a, as a leader is how do you make sure that the desirable or the necessary doesn't get crowded out by the immediate? So you're mayor of Dallas and they tell you you need more money for police and fire, you know, because X might happen, but you've got these things that are, that are coming every day into your office. How do you, how do you have the foresight uh, and have the right advisors around to say, no, 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 no. If we don't do X, we may get a black swan event and we could end up having a critical problem coming. And so the, the pressure on us all the time to try to decide to deal with the immediate, right, Terry, the immediate as opposed to something that we think is necessary. Yeah. And there's a lot of ways to think about that. You know, you might remember in the early days of, uh, of when we tried to do things about spousal abuse and have a place for, uh, for battered women to go. I mean, it took it, you know, why didn't we do that sooner? Why didn't we do early childhood sooner? Uh, is that because the pressure of pay raises prevented us from being able to look at a longer term issue? Those people who are the best leaders to me are the ones that are ever able to separate, uh, you know, those things that are, that are necessary and try to move them in closer to the immediate and not get drowned out. Yeah, well, well stated. I had similar circumstances in, in Dallas of, of, of things that were, you don't know you have an emergency until you have the emergency. And if you haven't prepared for it, things go badly. We do have a question from the, uh, uh, my, my, one of my colleagues from Texas, uh, former, uh, uh, former members uh, of Congress, President Martin Frost, who uh, John and I both served on, uh, served with in Congress. And he has a question on a kind of the sharp edge of, of this debate. And that is, uh, I'm going to call on John. It's, a, it's about to give you, it's about the armed protesters in state capitals, but we're going to open up to Martin to ask his question directly. Martin? Unmute. Can you hear me now? Yep. Well, you're on. Uh, these are all three of you are friends, and I have a great deal of respect for all three of you. And this is a real question. Uh, if Terry and uh, and John, if you were still governor of your state, what would you do with these armed thugs who show up brandishing uh, assault weapons in state capitol buildings to protest for immediate reopening of government? Uh, how, of uh, businesses. How would you handle that if you were still governor? Well, I can tell you in Virginia, listen, we were, you know, we're based, the NRA is based in Virginia. Uh, we have protesters on our Capitol grounds, armed protesters all the time. Uh, when I was governor, though, I banned all firearms from any state office building uh, to keep people safe there. But, you know, we, we have them consistently down in our Capitol in Richmond. And, you know, Martin, as long as they're not uh, breaking the law, they have every right to be there, to make their voices heard. I am always fine with that, that they do that. As long as they're not breaking the law, I may not like what they say, I may not like what they do, but you know what? They have every right to be there, and I would say and argue their Second Amendment. And as long as you're not disturbing the peace or hurting anybody, uh, they have every right at the Virginia Capitol to do that. John? Yeah, I, I, don't, I can't disagree with that at all, Steve. I think you know, people have a right to protest. Of course, when, where, and how is sometimes at issue. Uh, but we want them to exercise their, their First Amendment rights. And, and uh, But if they begin to pose a threat to health and safety of somebody, that's a whole different issue, Martin. And, um, uh, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's something you really would have to grapple with if it actually occurred on your watch. And, um, but if, if, your freedom extends to the, what do they say, to the nose of the next person. And if somebody is at risk, then you'll have no choice but to, but to have an action against it. But so far, I think, I think from what I understand, it's, 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 it's worked out. It's worked out fine. So the, so they want to the, shut down people's ability to be heard. That's, that would be the worst. Yeah. You know, I saw the worst of it, the worst, when I was governor, we had Charlottesville. And we had a, literally a thousand neo-Nazis and white supremacists screaming the most vile things I have ever heard. And I've heard a lot in my life uh, about African-Americans, members of the Jewish faith, women. I hated it. But you know what? 
I had to provide the police protection to keep them in their bounds. Some of them obviously went out of control, were arrested, have been convicted. But at the end of the day, this is America. And uh, I may not like it, and I didn't, and I hated it. But I do think, though, for elected officials, we have a responsibility to keep the peace. And I think the statements that we make, uh, I think, is a good messaging out to your citizens in, in the states that you run that some of this behavior is not condoned and not appropriate at, the, at this time. And I do think voices should be heard in, the, in situations like this. So, so the idea of intimidation using an armed AR-15 in a protest is, uh, I think I hear you saying we've just learned to live with it. I, I never had to live with it in Dallas, but I think it's a new world now. It's legal. It's legal. Yeah. Steve, here, here's, here's the issue. Here we're in the middle of this crisis, and it's beginning to, I hate to say it, and I'm, I don't want to, but it's beginning to show the deep, deep craters and divisions uh, in our society. Um, you know, the splits among rural and urban and uh, the issue of, uh, of the difference in, uh, in, in your ability to accumulate wealth, the division between the rich and the poor. Uh, this is very, very serious. And we take a look at people. You know, one of the best things I did here was to expand Medicaid. And at the time, people didn't like it. Terry tried to get it done. Uh, Terry, I don't remember if you got it done or not or if they blocked you, but we finally we got, got a Democratic here. legislature, John. They finally saw the light. We yeah, got we, we were able to, and it was very difficult here to get it through, but you know, I believe the, the, ultimately the Speaker of the House enabled it to get done here, and, and I'm so glad that we expanded because that expansion made a difference where people who didn't have much could get care. And, and th these issues are not issues that are going to go away. They're being amplified now. And some of, of course, the ideological divisions in the country, which are, you know, nothing like we've ever seen before, or we haven't seen in recent times, I guess I should say. So I, I think, I don't think we can ignore this. I think we have to pay attention to these things because they're glaring and they just can't be, you know, washed away or put our heads in the sand. Um, you know, the rural-urban split, Terry, I think, you know, you think about yeah. Virginia, you, you see it there in stark terms. But this division between rich and poor and who is it that gets laid off and who doesn't. Um, you know, I, I heard the other, you know, I mean, there's just a who, who lost their job, who is not. Uh, how, you know, I, I, I make less than $40,000 a year. I'm vulnerable. I mean, these are very, very serious issues that that have to be paid attention to and not bulldozed over as many in politics do. And Steve, that's why, you know, Terry and I are, are buddies. I mean, we, we sat down at a table, we, we would have things that we wouldn't agree on, but at the end we'd come out of there and we'd have, we'd have compromise back in the old days, you know, when you, when you put the disability act together, you know, you, you had to make compromise. And I'm glad that this problem solvers caucus is getting more, uh, a little bit more uh, motion, a little bit more recognition, but you know, we just can't, this is not very helpful. And frankly, it's why the federal government, uh, you know, there ought to be a, that's something that, that I'm going to think about later, but it's, it's not working. It's not working very well. And, uh, but the one these thing are serious issues. we should tell Martin, and I always try to tell people to keep this in perspective. So we saw 30, 40 people in front of the Capitol in Michigan, you know, I had a thousand real knuckleheads uh, in Charlottesville, just horrible human beings spewing. I'm standing in front of the synagogue. I got all my state police and they walk by, we're going to burn you and burn that synagogue like we did in Auschwitz. And I'm thinking, well, how did we get to a place in America? But I remind you, we're a nation of 340 million people. And these are a thousand knuckleheads. They do not define who we are as a nation. So the press loves controversy. They love to highlight what these folks are doing. But I always remind you, this is a very small group, subset of Americans. And we are a better nation than that. And there are a lot more people who disagree than agree with that. Well, well stated. On the, on the issue of inequality that John, John raised, uh, in fact, inequality is, is a huge sort of earthquake coming that it's, it, we thought it was somewhere in the, in the future uh, building uh, to, and it will build if, if left the current trends to an un, uh, unacceptable 
uh, levels. But this COVID crisis has laid bare those schisms. It, it's, it's far more stark. With 40, a 40% unemployment rate for those making less than $40,000 a year, it's, it's beyond unsustainable. I will give you one piece of good news that came from the states. Um, uh, the states had been invited for several years by USDA to allow people who are on SSI and therefore dis disabled um, uh, to, uh, to allow those, those people to buy their, use their SNAP benefits, their food, we used to call them food stamps, to, to buy them with on online. Uh, and six states took them up on that and only six. As a result of this though, with a great deal of, of effort, almost all states now uh, make online and, that and they were just approved yesterday by the USDA uh, to make SNAP benefits available online. Uh, so it was, a, it was a major victory for 10 million people with disabilities who have SSI and SSDI, uh, but it's a, it's a, it's a step. Uh, we did have a question that came, came across. Yeah, yeah, John? One thing here, you know, being a conservative Republican, uh, well, at least a conservative who wonders what's happened with my party, here, here. there is this sense in this country that, you know, when people get food stamps or whatever, you know, they're just not working. There's a lot of people who are in, and, you know, this is a difference between being in Congress where you kind of float around in an orbit. You know, you, you go to Washington, you sit there, you sit in committee meetings, you sit up on high and the witnesses are down low and then you fly home and you're congressman this and congressman that. Uh, you know this as well uh, as we do as a mayor it's no longer some big ideological deal. You see pain right in the streets. Uh, as a governor, you know, it becomes real. And somehow we've got to learn in this country again to put our, our, our feet in somebody else's shoes and think about, I want to get over, over uh, anal anecdotal here, but you take the mom with a couple kids trying to make it, you know, and she needs some food stamps and, we're, and she's working a couple jobs and we're going to berate her. I mean, this is a place where I think, you know, it, it just don't throw money at people, but you have to help people when they've got problems because uh, they're not going to go away. And, and I think that the Republicans have missed this, Steve. It's sort of like, I don't want to do that stuff, you know, Maybe this crisis is going to open up some folks, what you just said about SNAP, but, but why, why just for people who are severely disabled? What about, what about really legitimate poor people? What are we supposed to do? Ignore them? And I, I don't like this at all. It's like the issue of, of immigration. You know, how would you like to be, uh, be a mom that gets told that your son's going to be, be, be killed or your daughter's going to be raped if, if you don't commit to the drug lords, of course the hell you're going to get out of where you are. And what we and, and I'm not talking about the issue of immigration today because it's complicated because of this this COVID crisis. But long term, you know, to sort of demonize, particularly these kids that came here, the dreamers, the kids that came here through no fault of their own, whose parents brought them in here, and then we're going to deport them. This is not this is not the face of our country, and and it's it's disturbing to me. Uh, we'll see what the party looks like over time, but right now, I, I'm I'm not comfortable with it. I think you know that, though. Uh, and I'm distinctly uncomfortable. Demonizing the poor is is the scourge of the Republican Party, and unfortunately, it, it, it started. It what it didn't start with Ronald Reagan. It started sometime in the, uh, the, the, the you know George W. tried to uh, stand up against it with compassionate conservatism, but it's been overwhelmed now. And the demonizing the poor is. Uh, will be the death of our party if we allow it to. Well, uh, but Terry, but Terry, the, uh, the ability to demonize successful people and to question the very roots of capitalism, you know, that comes from the hard left and the anger that we see there is, you know, it's just terrible. And, you know, I'm thinking about the discovery of these drugs now. I mean, everybody wants a vaccine. Well, this is a race not just to do good, but it's a race that, you know, make some money, to have some profits. And, and the fact that we got to look at the left and, you know, they, they're like, they, they don't like this capitalism. I mean, it's something you're not comfortable with. I know that. I don't know if you'll talk about it, but, you know, it's. it's John, we got issues. In don't work. So, you know, I'm not going to spend my time. Listen, uh, I'm a very proud uh, pro jobs Democrat. I'm not going to spend my time, but there are, we, we you ought to get rid, of, on, I, we ought to get rid of these discussions on left and right. 
and focus on issues that matter that can help people's lives. We're talking, you know, Steve, you mentioned the whole disabilities with SNAP. Well, what people don't realize is so many children today, the only nutritious meal they get is when they go to school. So now we've been out of school and millions and millions of kids today in this country are not getting access to the meals that they had when they were in school. That's a real crisis for our country. And there's childhood breakfast and, and school programs that we have for that. That started in World War II because the generals wanted to make sure that they had a healthy source of folks that ultimately could go fight for us. So, you know, there are a lot of big issues. We need to come together in a bipartisan way, demonize, demonizing any party, left or right, doesn't help you at all. It's how do you get things actually done? I view this, this COVID crisis as horrible as it is. There are a lot of inequities in our economy today. Many people have not seen any gains for years. This is a time to rebuild the economy so that everybody gets a shot at sharing in the American dream. This is an opportunity. We've got to reboot and we got to reboot this economy and everybody needs to take advantage of it and prosper in it. And I view that as an opportunity going forward. Well, well, well done, Carrie, Terry, at uh, avoiding the demonizing of the of, of the capitalists by the by the left. But it's it, it's an equal it's a death to both parties at this point. Uh, this sense of extreme and blaming blaming the other, whoever the other happens to be. That's right. uh, we do yeah. have from Virginia. We have uh, former member Tom Davis who is on the line. Oh, we'll open up the line. And let him let him ask his question, Tom. Well, thank you. We're focused on the here and now and uh, where the virus is, but the amount of money that has gone out the door, uh, both with the printing presses and Congress appropriating, uh, we were already running trillion dollar deficits. Where does this put us two, three years down the road in our ability to combat uh, another black swan or just get our, our house in order? Uh, you know, what are the long-term effects of this? Uh, I, I understand that you wanna throw a lot of money out the door now, but when you do that, you don't have the regulation and the oversight, you, you pay a, a price for that. I mean, where do we see this going two, three years, the next administration, how are they gonna deal with this and what do you think the costs are long-term? Well, I just say Joe Biden's gonna have a rough row ahead of him when he becomes president. Um, you're right, Tom. Um, listen, I didn't like the way some of the money has gone out the door. I mean, they tried, as you know, I'm not gonna make today partisan. Democrats tried to put some constraints with the inspector generals. Trump wouldn't have it. And now you've seen a lot of companies and places got checks that should not have gotten checks. I mean, here in our area, Sidwell Friends, probably the most elite school in this region, $52 million endowment, you know, went and got $5 million for the small, from the Small Business Fund. I think that's outrageous. This was supposed to help small businesses who are just trying to survive. The bigger issue I have is what do we do about this debt and deficit? And we're not gonna pay for it. Our kids are gonna clearly pay for this, but putting money out without an incentive, proper oversight, this is taxpayer money. We should be watching this money very carefully. And I'm, you know, listen, I was not a fan, as you all know, I do CNN, I hated the Trump tax cut. Most of it went for stock buybacks to companies. It didn't help the average person. If you look at the data today, if you're gonna do a tax cut, I always believe use it to stimulate the economy so people can make more money. I'm very concerned about the federal government and the spending we have today without the guidelines on it to protect taxpayer dollars. The debt is gonna be the biggest issue and John had to deal with this. And you know, he was there with Bill Clinton when you had two years of budget surpluses in this. I mean, young people, they don't even believe that was possible. That in 99 and 2000, we had a budget surplus, but it actually can be done. But if we shoot all of our guns out, we are, if this COVID crisis comes back, we're not gonna have much left. Uh, to fight the next round of this. And that's what concerns me greatly. So John, I'm going to turn it to you. The, the tsunami of the federal debt is, uh, is coming. We don't know when it will arrive. So I just ask your prediction of when do we reach the, the drop dead limit of the federal debt? We seem to be, we seem to be approaching it. John? Well, for, first of all, Tom Davis is one of my favorite people. I mean, that guy, he, he is just, uh, he's a remarkable man and is able to communicate with virtually everyone. I consider him to be a friend and he's, he's terrific. Uh, and a great you know, opinion. Look, at, at this point, and Terry, I, I agree with you. There's some things that we saw that were really ugly, but we knew when we were shoveling, look, the house is on fire. You want to put the fire out, right? And, and you know, there's going to be some mistakes that are going to be made. I, 
I agree with you on inspector generals. Frankly, you know, they're being fired left and right. And I, I don't, I do not think that that's helpful at all. Um, but, you know, oversight and all that other stuff, of course, we're going to find things that are wrong. And I don't want to use that uh, in a way to just drive further anger towards anything that the government would do. Um, but how do you solve this? It, it's, it's like eating an elephant. You know, remember what we were facing. I mean, I spent, I don't know, 10 years of my life trying to get to the balanced budget. And the way we did it is we had people of both parties who really were committed to doing it. So we were able to make choices and, and create priorities the same way you did it when you inherited your deficit in the state. You know, the real issues are going to get to be about, about Social Security, uh, Medicare, and Medicaid are just giant issues. And I think there's ways to deal with it. I mean, we really actually need a healthcare system that uh, is going to reward uh, keeping people healthy rather than having a system that, you know, pays them when they're sick. I mean, and we, we fundamentally have that. Medicare is moving in the direction of a risk-based system where people are willing to, uh, to take some risk to keep people healthier. I think that as we move more and more, we did this in Ohio, uh, we will pay physicians, we'll pay hospital systems a bonus if they can keep you healthier than you thought. Uh, Medicaid is a, uh, I think there is a way in which you can do some block granting of Medicaid as long as the money actually gets spent on health care and isn't taken by somebody uh, to spend on something else with proper baselines. And I mean, it's complicated. There's ways to do that. You know, one of the things we have to think about is uh, how do we get people, you know, you think about the federal employees and their ability, uh, Terry, to, uh, and Steve knows this, to be able to uh, be able to choose a stock portfolio, a stock and bond portfolio, or a bond portfolio that's been reviewed. Nothing is beyond, uh, you know, a black swan, but it's the best and most prudent way to do things with diversification. And then you got to look at the entire infrastructure of government. You know, and the Department of Defense, uh, you know, needs uh, needs uh, <laughs> that. Sometimes we refer to that as the Uniform Public Works Committee. Uh, you know, everybody has to have a base. Everybody has to have a weapon system. We know the way. So over time is the way you begin to deal with it. When you reach that critical notion and where the debt is, is overcoming the GDP has always traditionally been a warning sign. Unique times. One thing that I, I did like that, that Powell said, uh, I watched a little bit of it on 60 Minutes, is when you think about this, the economy, the economy was, was fundamentally pretty strong. And what's happened here has been caused by, by uh, this virus more than it was, you know, the 2008 where leverage got piled up higher and higher and higher and the chairs all fell. Um, but it'd be a combination of some economic growth and some legitimate reform. But again, what are you going to do about the, the you know, Tom Davis is the chairman of, uh, of George Mason. What are these universities going to look like over time? What's the future of online education combined with, with, with a real experience in college? What, what, what is not just the healthcare system in the federal government, but what about the overall healthcare system? What is it supposed to look like? See, I think there's a great opportunity here for all of these major systems to be, to be redesigned. What is the role of, of Zoom? What's the infrastructure going to look like of businesses that have these giant buildings, but they don't need anybody to go in them anymore? I mean, there's so much opportunity. Uh, and I look at these things as, you know, they're tough, but what's the opportunity for dramatic change? Because of any of these crises, you remember what, what Rahm Emanuel said, never waste a good crisis. So there is an opportunity to redesign many things in, in America that can be very exciting and really help people at the same time. Well, in the spirit of redesign and reforming and problem solving, let me turn back and bipartisanship. Let me turn back to Terry and then to John looking ahead to 2020 to 2020. Uh, so let's assume for a moment, if Joe Biden is president, we'll, we all know uh, Senator uh, Vice President uh, Biden. So will Vice President Biden be able to sort of break out of the mold and reach across the aisle and solve problems in a bipartisan way with the, with, with the Congress and other, and other players? Or will he be sort of stuck in this, he said, she said, uh, um, uh, join your team and, and fight the other team? 
Terry, what's your prediction and how would you approach it if you were, if you were his chief of staff, which I predict? Yeah. Steve, listen, he has to. We don't have an option. I mean, we're going to, we could be 20, 25% unemployment in our nation. I mean, we're exceeding what we even saw in the depression in certain areas of our economy. So we're going to be forced to do it. And most of you all know, I know the both of you on this call and Martin and others, you've all dealt with Joe Biden. He is a very bipartisan guy. He worked in the Senate, a creature of the Senate for many years, working across the aisles to get things done. The thing that I'm excited about is I do think, Steve, he will bring in very qualified, top-level people to fill the agencies in, in the cabinet positions. I think that's the most important thing. You know, you've seen the crisis in the last couple of years. We have so many acting secretaries competing against one another. There's no consistent thought coming out. He will bring in a great cabinet, and he will bring in a great bureaucracy and fix it up. But ultimately, and I've known Joe Biden for 40 years. Um, as, as John said, you know, at the end of the day, you got to compromise to get things done. You had to compromise as mayor. That's who Joe Biden is moving the country forward. So I'm very optimistic. As I say, I've known him for a long time. He'll get along with people, wants to get along with people. But this is a different time than we've faced. And the public has had it. They are sick of the partisan bickering. You know, no offense. And I know we've got a lot of members of Congress, but it is broken today. Democrats don't talk to Republicans, you, you know. I was a governor. I had 32 Democrats out of 100 in my house of delegates. You know what I did? I wined and dined them every single night at the governor's mansion. You know, <laughs> I had to build relationships. Cigars and Irish whiskey. Yeah, I, I, I'm the first governor to put a kegerator in my mansion. I mean, I, damn, I did it all. But if I just said I'm not going to talk to them because we're I wouldn't have gotten a damn bill passed. We got to get past this ideological barriers where if you're a Republican, your ideas are horrible and vice versa. We got to learn to work together for the sake of the country, and I think. The and Terry, the, 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 the precise the precise question is: Will uh, a president Biden be able and be be able to? I know he wants to be able to sort of stand up to the hardcore forces of his own of his own party. Yes, uh, who, on the left, on the and, left, and I sure. And I'm telling you, he's going to do it and has to do it because of the crisis that our country is in. As bad as it is, it provides him an opportunity. We don't have time for the partisan bickering in our own party or with the Republican side. And listen, there's going to be fights. That's all. That's so, politics. But we are in a crisis in this country. The 36 million people out of work today, let me be clear, many of them are not, are not getting their jobs back. How do we deal with the gig economy? How do we provide health care for these folks? We've got to rebuild a new economy in this country that benefits everybody. And it's going to take all of us working together. And the public doesn't want to hear if you're a Democrat or Republican. Get the damn job done. Do your job. So, so John, let me turn it. Let me turn it to you and our and our party. Uh, bless bless their hearts. Uh, will 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 our party leadership in the Congress, or at least the leaders of the Congress, some or all, will they be able to again work with a White House that's in the other in the other party? Well, you know, uh, Steve. Did you hear that? Predict the Congress is. About predict the weather, yeah. okay. you know. Um, well, Joe Biden is president. Yeah, I think, you know, you're going to see the Republican Party beginning to rethink itself. I mean, if, if the elect, I mean, it, you know, what we've been seeing is just pretty shocking. And, but, you know, right. politicians tend to do what's in their interests. And uh, I think you're, you will see a real debate in the Republican Party about what the party should be about and what the issue should be and the priorities. Um, I sort of look at the 2020 election as a kind of a stand pat election, um, with the 24 election being one that kind of moves us in a different direction. Uh, I'm glad that Terry is involved with Joe Biden. Um, I'm, and, you know, he and I, but I'm doing a lot of work with John Kerry on, on World War Zero on the climate initiative. And I'm, you know, he's, he's sensible about all of this. And I, I feel good that these guys are really, really involved, Terry intimately involved uh, with, with the Biden operation. Um, you know, the real, the real question I think the Democrats have to face is how, how do they get the Sanders people to participate in this election without Biden have to move, move to a, you know, unacceptable drift to the left. I heard from a Republican just last night, Terry, I heard last night that yeah. Biden sure seems to be moving left, you know, 
Um, I mean, these are things you have to hear. And, uh, you know, and, and that makes him very nervous because if, if he, he signals that he's going left, then those disgruntled Republicans and some of those independents, they're not going to Biden. So, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky thing, but there's nobody that, that's better at figuring out tricky stuff than Terry McAuliffe. So we just have to see. It's interesting time. So, Terry, what's your what's your advice to Vice President Biden on how to? Well, you can't. He's not going to answer that. He's got to do his job. <laughs> Don't be doing that. I am advised. It's just it's just us. It's just us. Yeah. 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 But listen, I'm working. You know, I'm helping coordinate a huge group of Republicans for Biden, and I mean, there's just a lot of folks who they just want to move on from Trump. I mean, we won't make today overly partisan. You know, and. Biden is a very good guy, and he, he is a centrist Democrat, I mean, on economic issues. Now, listen, once the primary ended, he moved, he, you know, he went with Warren on her bankruptcy bill. He went with Bernie on those under 125000 get free college. He's moved on a couple issues, which I think are good issues for him to move on. But I know who Joe Biden is at his core, and I think he just wants to get this country moving again, and he's not going to do something right or left or whatever, if he doesn't think it moves our economy forward. He's got, he, I can't tell you what he is going to be facing on January uh, 2021 when he goes in office. And he knows he's got to make the best decision. But what I'm most excited, as I say, he is going to put great people around him. I'll tell you this, he listens. What I like, you know, I've dealt with a lot of presidents and a lot of presidential candidates. Uh, you know, if I got something to say to Joe Biden on a particular issue, the guy listens, asks the questions. And, you know, he's going to he's going to make the right decision. I'm, I'm confident. All right. Let me move there to a specific question. One of the big items of the news lately is has been voting by mail. The White House or the President Trump anyway, seems to be sort of four square against it. Uh, what is what is what is your sense on the whole voting by mail controversy? Either of you. Well, I'm well a, I, it's, it's you know, inevitable. I, I think voting by mail is inevitable. You know, let the secretaries of state figure out the the, right, the proper security for it. And, you know, it's going to be part of, of the American landscape going forward. I mean, you know, I, I think we know why some people don't like the idea. Uh, but, you know, with proper security, it, it, it can be done. And, and I believe it will be done. Terry? Listen, Steve, at the end of the day, we just want people to go in who have the ability to vote however they do it and make it an easy process. This is America. This is the greatest democracy in the world. I'm a huge advocate nationally for vote by mail. Uh, as you know, Utah, Hawaii, Colorado, Oregon, Maine, they do it today. And other states are going to move forward. I'd like to see Virginia get to that place. And if you look at the data, statistically, it doesn't show it helps one party over the other. This is a falsehood. Trump came out and said, I'll never be for vote by mail because no Republican will ever win again. He actually said that from the White House briefing room. That's just not true. Statistically, and anyone wants to get it, I'll be glad to pry. It doesn't help one party. It just makes it easier for people to vote. And it, it's challenging for many people on a Tuesday. They're working. They got two jobs. They got kids. Make, make it easy. If you're a registered voter, give it to them and let them mail back in or drop it off at a community center. I don't know what all the big fuss is about, but you know, we gotta get everybody in this great democracy to vote. 20, 92 million people did not vote in 2016 who had you know, the right to vote. And I just say, we got people fighting, uh, fought wars for our great, I have a son just got back from Iraq, a Marine. We have folks that are putting their lives on the line to keep our country. We ought to be able to protect the greatest democracy. And that is showing the rest of the world that we care and we vote and vote by mail makes it easier. Well stated. Uh, it's time for, we haven't, we haven't finished the subject, but we finished our time. Uh, John and Terry, any wrap up comments, anything else you wanted to say that you didn't get, uh, didn't get asked? Uh, I just say well, all I the members of Congress, thank you for your service. Uh, all of you who have served, you don't have to do this. This is a tough business and you stepped up to the plate and you ran for office. And first of all, I just say, thank you. As someone who's been in politics for 40 years, I appreciate what all the members of Congress have done. And all of us need to work together. John Kasich and I are very good friends. Uh, I'm very good friends with Jeb Bush. I'm good, very good friends with Chris Christie. People find this hard to believe. You know what? It's not hard to believe. We probably agree on, on more than we disagree with. This is 
who we are, and we got to get it where people are actually working together for the good of their constituents. Well stated. And that's John? my message. John? Well, I enjoyed, enjoyed being with everybody. Hopefully, I'll be in Washington at some point and be able to say hi to a, a lot of old friends. And uh, thanks for, uh, for thinking of me. Thank you, John. Thank you, oh, Terry. Stephen, full disclosure before we go. Yeah. I should say that Donald Trump wrote me a $25,000 check when I ran for governor. <laughs> <laughs> well, con con consistency has never oh, been no. one of his limitations. I love everybody. <laughs> <laughs> if John Casey gives me $25,000, i will love him even more. <laughs> <laughs> okay, John, let's, let's get you on the ballot, John, and we'll be fine. <coughs> See you all. Thank you. All right, thank you.